Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world, especially the old world. Today, Florence and the Machine. CNR partner Simon Most joins us from a recent tour of Europe, including the International Bar Association Conference in Florence. It's interesting too that the European Court of Justice is pushing the regulator and pushing the court toward more of an evidence-based approach to competition questions, just rule of thumb type or red line presumptions about the way these operate has been rejected. And some of those presumptions have been around for a long time. But first, Matt, Florence and the Machine are the very successful indie rock band who are touring Australia at the moment. But is there a movie connection? Have they written any film scores like Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood or Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross from the Nine Inch Nails? Well, those are some great examples, Moya. And actually, Isabella the Machine Summers has scored quite a few films and TV shows. Uh, and the band also did a song for an episode of Game of Thrones. Fair enough. And the conference was in Florence, but who's the machine? Is Simon most the machine? Well, Simon talks about the digital platforms and about the Intel case, even back to the old 386 processors, and those are all machines. Mm-hmm. But Simon could also be the machine. But anyway, what's happening around the grounds? Well, ACCC Chair Gina Cass-Gottlieb has just announced the ACCC's enforcement and compliance priorities for the coming financial year, 2023-24, in the traditional way. What, walking down Martin Place with a bell saying, hear ye, hear ye, these are our priorities? Yeah, actually bursting a series of balloons, each with a different priority inside. Oh yes, I like that, but not with missiles, I hope. No, in fact, it was at a very tasty lunch hosted by Cedar and sponsored by us. You'll remember that this time last year, the chair said that she endorsed Rod Sims' priorities. And this year, again, she really emphasised the continuity in the ACCC's work and in its priorities as well. So no U-turns or even sharp lefts? Not really, no. There's a greater focus on environmental and sustainability claims, which now includes product safety and competition concerns, as well as consumer and fair trading issues. Mm -hmm. There's a new focus on unfair contract terms with the new laws coming into effect later this year. And also a focus on scam detection and disruption to support the National Anti-Scam Centre, which the government has promised to establish. Finally, there's a new priority on wholesale gas markets, including the price cap that the ACCC is administering. And they're still interested in the digital economy and digital platforms, essential services like energy and telecommunications, supply chains, financial services and payment services, and motor vehicles and caravans. But it looks like COVID-19 and Button batteries have fallen off the list this year. They have. The enduring priorities are unchanged, as you'd expect, and those include cartels, another anti-competitive conduct, product safety, consumers who experience vulnerability or disadvantage, and conduct that impacts First Nations Australians. We already know that the chair is calling for a prohibition of unfair trading practices. Did she mention any other law reforms? She did confirm that the ACCC will soon propose a new merger approvals process, mm. which will be mandatory and suspensory. They'll also push to give consumer guarantees the force of law, so it'll be illegal not to comply with them. And that's something Rod Sims raised last year, and now the new chair has picked that up as well. Right. Well, I remember that Malcolm Turnbull got a bit of stick over his slogan, continuity and change, which had already been used in the TV show Veep. But this sounds like continuity and continuity. Yeah, it's not like the US Federal Trade Commission, where the new chair might radically change the whole direction of the agency, but that might not be a bad thing. Nothing to frighten the horses. Change we can believe in. And for a gripping recap of the state of play in competition law right now, plus a few predictions for the year ahead, the GNT team has put together a page turner, which you can find linked in the show notes. We even stuck in a new cryptic crossword as well. I have so many crosswords to catch up on. What else is new, Matt? Well, the full federal court has just dismissed the ACCC's appeal in the long-running case against New South Wales ports. 
When you told me we were covering the Newcastle case this week, I thought we were finally reporting on the Premier League's ownership regulation and whether the Saudi government does or doesn't control Newcastle United. No, this is much more exciting than that. This is infrastructure privatisation. Well, like the stadiums? Well, more like the cargo ports. And those were a real focus for former ACCC chair Rod Sims. He was always concerned that the ports and other assets were being sold off in ways that might fetch the highest prices now, but would limit competition in the future. Ah, yeah, that's right. So here, when the state government sold the container ports around Sydney to New South Wales ports, it promised to compensate them if the port of Newcastle up the coast developed its own container port. That's right. And the government would then recover that compensation, if there was any, from the new owners of the port of Newcastle. And the ACCC was worried that that arrangement would discourage Newcastle from developing its own container port, and that would lessen competition. But the federal court, and now the full federal court on appeal, found that because the arrangement was with the state government, New South Wales ports had derivative crown immunity. That's right. And even if it didn't, there was no anti-competitive purpose or effect, and that was partly because there wasn't a real chance that Newcastle would ever develop a container port anyway. It just wasn't commercially viable. And are you going to mention that we acted for New South Wales ports in this? Can we call it a triumph? We can call it a positive outcome for our client. Okay. At the time of recording, we don't have the court's reasons just yet, but special counsel Sarah Lynch, who did a lot of work on the case, will join us soon to talk us through the appeal and everything that's happened around it. Yeah, because while that was going on in the courts, the state government actually passed a bill saying that the Port of Newcastle wouldn't be on the hook for any compensation paid to New South Wales ports after all. That's right. So they will be able to build a container port if it turns out to be viable, and they'll just have to pay back any discount they might have got when they bought the port because of the compensation arrangements. And that's being determined right now by the Independent Pricing and Regulatory Tribunal. Well, we'll look forward to talking to Sarah about all of that on the Port Report coming up in a later episode. So what else is new? In greenwashing news, late last year, the ACCC did an internet sweep looking at nearly 250 brands across eight different sectors for environmental or sustainability claims that might not stack up. Wait, so there are people in the ACCC that get paid to surf the internet all day? Yeah, I can't imagine what that might be like. (laughs) But their sweep found that more than half of the businesses were making environmental claims that were concerning because they were vague or unclear, they didn't back them up, or they used certifications or symbols in a confusing way. So they might be saying that a product was made with, say, sustainable materials without going into any more detail about what the materials are or what makes them sustainable. Exactly. And the sectors with the highest proportion of concerning claims were cosmetics, clothing and footwear, and food and drink, but all the industries had a fair few. So concerning, is that the same as false or misleading? Yeah, not necessarily. Uh, The ACCC is going to have to take a closer look at each of the claims and decide what to do with them. They might just ask for corrections or undertakings, or they could issue infringement notices and even perhaps legal proceedings for the more serious ones. And the ACCC has a new deputy chair who could be pretty keen to bring some cases. That's right. Like her predecessor, Delia Rickard, the new deputy chair, Katrina Lowe, has a lot of experience in consumer protection, including a long run at the Consumer Action Law Centre and a number of ombuds positions as well. And I'm reading in the Finn Review that she says the ACCC's enforcement powers are there to be used and that she's prepared to lose cases that test the limits of the law. She says, and I quote, as a regulator, if you're aiming to win 99% of your cases, you're not taking enough hard cases, unquote. Right. And she also says that if you haven't fully tested the limits of the existing laws, that makes it harder to argue that you need new laws, which is a good point. After the Banking Royal Commission, I remember ASIC adopted a why not litigate approach 
which it then backed away from a bit after a few years, but it is still litigating and now it's actually taking the lead in greenwashing. It is. ASIC has just taken the Mercer Superannuation Fund to court. It's alleging that Mercer misled its customers when it said that its Sustainable Plus investment options wouldn't put any money into carbon-intensive fossil fuels or alcohol production or gambling. Then allegedly, it invested in companies like Glencore Coal, Budweiser and Crown. Hmm, well, that does sound interesting. ASIC has issued infringement notices for greenwashing in the past, but in this case, it decided taking Mercer to court was the best appropriate option. Yeah, and we'll keep a close eye on that and any action that comes out of the ACCC's green sweep. In the meantime, Moya, you've spoken to G&T partner Simon Mose about his National Lampoon's European vacation. <laughs> yes, that's right. Simon's filled in all the dates on his Eurail pass and he's got a stamp from every youth hostel on the continent and he's back with stories to tell. Let's take a listen. Very pleased to welcome Simon Most from our Melbourne office here today. Good to be here, Moya. Now, you've been travelling a little bit. I was at a, an antitrust conference in Florence run by the International Bar Association. That's held every year and it's always a good chance to catch up. What was discussed? What were the main topics? It's quite a European-centric conference, obviously being in Italy as it is. And there was a, it was a quite a wide range of themes. What was really interesting to me was the similarities, the consistency, if you like, of some of the debates that are going on in Europe particularly, but more generally with what's happening here in Australia. And there was a bit of a talk about what antitrust should, be, where it should be played. And I know we've had in the past on these podcasts, people talk about hipster antitrust. That seems to be maturing as a, you know, we're obviously getting into a stage where people are really starting to grapple with what does that look like. I think it's called progressive antitrust. Progressive antitrust, particularly in the States, they talk about that. Here we, we debated a little bit around the consumer welfare standard and what should or shouldn't be part of that. And what was interesting to me, other than the fact that this is clearly still a hot debate across, you know, antitrust practitioners around the world, were the differences in focus and emphasis around what people think antitrust should be including in a broader set of issues. So obviously we know about issues of data protection and privacy, which have been a big issue, particularly for us here and in the States. And the Europeans, of course, are very big into climate change and the carbon economy as, as part of expanding and broadening out what's relevant in some of these antitrust debates and merger processes. Um, interestingly, a number of the African lawyers there spoke about labor market issues and particularly protection for low income or insecure income workers, wage requirements, sort of labor market rights, if you like, in some of those sub-Saharan African economies, perhaps even more relevant in the way they're thinking about this issue than the kind of topics we've traditionally thought about. And those things go ultimately to income disparity and wealth disparity, absolutely don't they? Absolutely do. Yeah, no, absolutely do. And so that's in some respects between countries when you think about that in the context of, for example, the carbon economy, but at a much more micro level, that's absolutely what we were hearing. And since we're on a bit of a European vacation mm. in this episode, mergers, there, yeah. w- there was a pretty big matter involving mergers in the EU, which has caused a lot of waves. Tell us about that. Look, the Illumina case was a big one and it did take up quite a bit of airtime. It was a vertical merger between the maker of a technology, what they describe as a next generation sequencing technology that's used for the genetic analysis of blood tests. That's Illumina's technology and they are far and away the sort of leading manufacturer of these kind of genetic sequencing technology. They're an American firm that acquired another American firm, which was a customer, Grail, 
And Grail was one of a number of companies that's competing to develop blood tests that allow for early detection and treatment of cancers, which obviously could be a very, very significant and positive medical development. You can test otherwise asymptomatic patients using these blood tests and identify cancer at a much earlier stage than you would otherwise, allowing for early treatment. It's quite a competitive area, and it's still very much a nascent area, but the Illumina technology as the leading genetic sequencing technology is a really important input into the development of those and the innovation around that blood testing technology. So we had, if you like, a vertical merger between the manufacturer and this customer. It didn't involve any European countries, and neither of the firms had a presence or revenues in Europe. Despite that, and this is really one of the reasons why the case is quite interesting and quite important, the European Commission, through a mechanism in Article 22 of their directive, in effect referred or had referred to it, this merger called it in, if you like, in the language of the Europeans, because it was concerned about the impact that vertical integration of Illumina's technology with Grail would have on the kind of innovation and the competition around development in the downstream market of that kind of cancer testing. So it was a really interesting case, firstly, just from a jurisdiction question, the fact that we could have the Europeans step into a merger where they otherwise had no role to play, it didn't meet any of the thresholds, and frankly, the players involved weren't even located or operating to block effectively a merger. And then on vertical concerns around innovation and the potential for this vertical deal to crimp long-term future innovation and competition in a nascent market. So it's got resonance with a lot of the digital platforms arguments you hear. And they've often talked about in Section 50 for digital platforms being concerned about the killer app problem, that you've got these big players that take out the next potential competitor or the next killer app or otherwise kind of impact nascent competition in markets. It might not be possible yet to see just quite how significant it will be, but by the time you see it, it's too late. But what was the theory of harm? Though? Was it that other downstream players wouldn't be able to acquire this technology and compete with them at that layer? That's exactly right. The view was that Illumina's technology was well installed across a sort of base of laboratories across Europe, and it was going to be very hard, so the commission found, and the general court ultimately agreed when it was appealed. It was going to make it very difficult to switch to another provider if you're somebody else, a competitor of Grail's. They found there were high barriers to entry, as you'd always expect in these sort of high-tech kind of farmer or farmer-esque markets, including because of IP licensing and other sorts of things. So even though the sales were small, the commission did find that, you know, this early detection, blood detection for cancer, the market for those products was going to grow rapidly over the next decade, and they saw a material impact on that. It's interesting because you would think that there might be undertakings or behavioural remedies or something that could address those sorts of Well, they of did arms. put some remedies on the table. So both parties did put some long-term commitments around licensing of the mm-hmm. technology. Didn't cut it? Didn't cut it. I mean, a little bit like the ACCC here, there's a sort of reluctance these days to take behavioural remedies as a solution to what these antitrust bodies see as structural issues in merger cases. And any implications for Australia, do you think, out of all that? Look, I think it's interesting for us on a couple of levels. On one level, there's a kind of an increased deal risk now around transactions, especially in those markets where these issues arise more commonly, hyperscaler type markets. You're in those kind of markets, you could be engaged in a transaction that otherwise doesn't have a nexus to Europe, and at least this case would suggest can still be called in and and forced to unwind that. 
down the track post-completion. So that creates a pretty unique level of deal risk we haven't seen previously out of Europe. It's interesting that the long arm of competition law separated by both time, if it's post-completion, and the geography quite, so from the other quite. side of the world. Absolutely. That's what makes the case, I think, such a significant one, and it was certainly controversial. The other interesting aspect of that deal, as well as the deal risk point, of course, is just the competition theory of harms Another interesting example of one of those nascent markets. This is a little different to some of the others because, to your point earlier, it's a vertical theory of harm. It's not even that Google is trying to buy a small, potentially competitive search engine. You're talking about the integration of another downstream customer and a view that maybe that will enable you to leverage or to foreclose others' access to your technology. Because so much of competition law over the last couple of decades has been aimed at vertically integrated companies and working out how you can slice and dice them to create competition at different layers. It does suggest that there's a lack of confidence in a regulator's ability to come along and fix things like that using those old tools. But rather than that, they want to prevent them arising in the first place. I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing calls for such strong regulatory intervention is that sometimes the evidentiary requirements to prove up these kind of theories of harm can be considerably harder than maybe a straight up horizontal aggregation where you've got more tools at your disposal to be able to point to, whether it's SNP analysis or UPP or or, or whatever, to sort of look at the impacts around pricing and cross-elasticities. You don't have those kind of obvious tools as readily available to. And if you look at, you know, your P and Horizon type case from a few years ago here, classic example of the ACCC struggling to make good exactly that kind of vertical theory of harm. But at the same time, we've had separation, you know, structural separations and and things like that, which have very much lent on the theory of vertical harm. And meantime, those who were trying to escape those sorts of remedies were arguing about vertical integration efficiencies. Does it represent a disbelief in vertical integration efficiencies? I think the trade-off that was made was whatever efficiencies you were going to achieve, if it led ultimately to monopolisation of the market then the loss of efficiencies from that loss of competition were were going to outweigh that. I don't think they're necessarily against vertical integration in all contexts, but it is a question of what position does it put you in in a related market. Interesting counterfactual though, isn't it? Oh yeah, always. pretty, Pretty opaque perhaps. So where are we up to in Illumina now and what happens next? It'll almost certainly be appealed, yes, so we'll we'll see it now to the General Court and the ECJ. First, the European Commission itself needs to issue a further decision setting out what it proposes to do in terms of the prohibition. So that will be an order that directs the parties to unwind the merger. So there's a fair bit of water still to go under the bridge in that process. Obviously, this is now post-completion, it's a reasonable period of time. There have been some interim orders in place, I think, some sort of hold separate arrangements, but there's still quite a bit to be done. It does raise the question of when you can never really be sure that your merger is complete. It's like they say, if you're playing Germany, you don't know that you've won until their bus has left the stadium. But it, <laughs> in this case, the bus has gone down the road back to the hotel. You're right. There are some protections in the EU framework that require, if there's going to be a referral to the commission, that it needs to be done within a certain period of time of the commissioner or the member state becoming aware of the relevant conduct. That, though, is itself pretty unclear. How much do you have to know? How much information does there need to be about the potential market implications of a deal in order 
to satisfy that requirement that the time should run. Once that occurs, the time's pretty tight. It's about 15 days. That That's meant to protect the very issue you're talking about. So you don't go in and end up six months or 12 months later or God knows years later and have it being brought back into you. But that was one of the issues that was raised, of course, by Illumina and Grail. In this case was that, well, you had the time and you missed it. You know, you should be pinged for that, not able to bring the case, but that was rejected by the general court. So it is a case that suggests that there's more lenience and scope there for the regulator than any of us thought there was. So other big cases? Yeah, well, Intel's another really interesting one. The first big defeat for Vestager and, and for the European Commission for the best part of 20 years. So they don't lose a lot. Now, that's partly a reflection of the way their model works, that they get to be judge, jury, and executioner most of the time. So you don't lose a lot when you're getting to decide. But nonetheless, Intel was, a, in some respects, a bit of a classic case. Dates all the way back to a time we were just talking about, sort of early 2000s, when Intel was said to have abused its dominant position in the market for chipsets in Europe by imposing conditional rebate arrangements on a bunch of computer manufacturers, so your Dells and HPs, NECs. There were a couple of elements to what Intel did they had one form of conditional rebates linked to naked restrictions. They were basically fidelity payments. So they would pay these computer OEM manufacturers directly in order not to use the main competitor chip, the AMD chip, or to not release upcoming series of products that had those chips in them. The other sort were conditional rebates or requirements clauses. That was effectively either a requirement that you take 100% of your chip requirements from Intel or that you got a rebate provided you took you know, 95% or 90% or 80% or, or whatever the, the minimum requirement sort of level was. Now, that's slightly different, subtly, but importantly, different. We're not saying if you do X volume, then you get a discount. This was whatever your requirements are, you need to either give us all of it or you need to give us a a certain significant proportion of that. Anyway, that kicked around for a number of years. The commission levied a very, very significant billion euro fine back in 2009. That fine was upheld in 2014 by the general court. It got sent upstairs again to the European Court of Justice. And in 2017, the ECJ rejected the Commission's approach to conditional rebates. So let me get this right. On timing, this all dates back to about 2002. So we're talking about two decades of the same case rolling on from the conduct through to the initial action, through the appeal, through the, it was sent back down, wasn't it? And 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 this is the latest finding. So that is 20 years. It, it is. It's a very, very long time. And the most recent decision was, if you like, the decision of the general court the second time around. So it had gone up from the commission to the GC. The general court had sent it to the European Court of Justice. They had sent it back downstairs to be heard again. And without going too far into all of the minutiae of this. Effectively, it said, you can't simply assume that because you're a dominant player, a player with market power, and you impose a requirements clause or a conditional rebate on a customer, that that will necessarily have an adverse effect on competition and be an SLC, in effect. That where there is evidence that despite the fact that you've got market power, if there's evidence that it was unlikely to have actually had any sort of material effect on competition, you have to take that into account. And the main test for doing that, which has been around for a long time, is the equally efficient competitor test. You ask yourself whether an equally efficient competitor could enter the market and compete, notwithstanding that these requirements contracts were in place. 
So effectively, it's an argument that says you're suffocating other providers because they just can't get enough business to make it viable for them to compete with you because you've offered people such incentives, not just to put certain volumes with you, but to put all or almost all of their business with you. So there's just scraps off the table for everyone else. That's right. And what the commission and general court's case here was, was, look, there was a, a certain minimum number of PCs that, that would have to be with Intel just because of the strength of the brand. And so the contestable part of the market wasn't 100% of the chipset requirements. It was less than that. And what the court found, you know, until the ECJ was that these conditional rebates really did prevent anyone from chipping away at that contestable component, if you like, of the market. For us, it's it's interesting for a couple of reasons. It's a big loss for the commission, which is unusual and hasn't happened for a long time. So that's that's one interesting factor. It's interesting too that the European Court of Justice is pushing the regulator and pushing the court toward more of an evidence-based approach to competition questions, just rule of thumb type or red line presumptions about the way these operate has been rejected. And some of those presumptions have been around for a long time, but it's interesting that they're pushing the court and the commission into being much more focused on kind of evidence and and, and lifting the threshold to prove up SLC claims over there. So will it be appealed? Is this over well, yet? Well, it's already it- been appealed again. So around okay. and around we go. Perhaps does serve to highlight something that I know the ACCC's banged on about forever, which is just how long and how hard these dominance cases can be to run and why in the context of a technology market like, let's face it, chipsets, it may not always be the best means of deterring conduct. The differences in the market for chipsets between 2002 and now, it's just, it's a planet away, isn't it? This was the the, the X86 chipset. So this is like three and four, eight, six, like we're talking... It's also a case that has some similarities to the latest Section 46 case, the ACCC's run against MasterCard, of course, which at its heart is based around a claim that they ended into arrangements with 20 of the very large national retailers, which provided them with payments on the basis that they used MasterCard's debit processing platform rather than FPOS for a substantial proportion of their debit card requirements and processing requirements. So again, it's a form, if you like, of requirements clause and it'll just, you know, it'd be interesting to see where that one goes. Thank you very much for joining us today, Simon. It's been a pleasure to hear about your European sojourns and I hope the Contiki tour ended well. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Moyo. What a great interview. That Intel case really is remarkable though. The first complaint from AMD was in the year 2000 and it's still going. It's like every lawyer's favourite fictional case, Jandice and Jandice from Bleak House. Take your word for that. What about Illumina's acquisition of Grail and its special blood test? Wasn't that the Da Vinci Code? Now you're talking. Anyway, it's great to get that for you from Europe as well as the US. Both jurisdictions are likely to shape the ACCC's approach and the new laws that we might end up with over the next few years. Indeed. But before we go, what's in your crystal ball? Just quickly, there's a story involving criminal cartels, sport and broadcasting, which I couldn't go past. Oh, three of my favourite subjects, the original triple threat. That's right. The Japan Fair Trade Commission has brought criminal charges against three advertising agencies, three event and TV production companies, and a member of the Tokyo Olympic Committee for bid rigging in the 2020 Olympics. It's hard to remember, but those were the ones that were eventually held in 2021 with no spectators for some reason. Yeah, I'm sure there was a reason. Anyway, the JFTC alleges that the group first decided who was going to win the bids for the test events, which they run to make sure all of the venues and the infrastructure are all ready. And then they agreed that those bidders would also be chosen for the actual Olympics. Well, I'm shocked that the organisers of an international sporting event might not be anything but squeaky clean. I thought you'd be shocked. 
And actually, the alleged bid rigging was uncovered through a bribery investigation involving a lot of the same players, as well as the supplier of the Japan team's uniforms, and even the toy maker who produced the Olympic and Paralympic mascots. Not Niraitoa or Sumeiti, I hope. No, Muraitoa and Sumeiti seem to have avoided prosecution oh, for now. Good. They may well have been the whistleblowers and perhaps even the immunity applicants. <laughs> well, we all remember Fatso the fat ass Wombat, who was the unofficial mascot of the Sydney Olympics. But has the official Olympic mascot ever been a mole or a rat? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. But the Paris mascot's going to be a hat. Yeah, a Smurf hat, to be precise. Yeah, so the question then will be, will we say Smurf rigging or bid Smurfing? Or Smurf Smurfing. Interestingly, there have been quite a few Smurf smurfing cases around the world and here in Australia recently. And one reason may be that the enforcement agencies are developing screening tools to detect suspicious smurfing activity. Peter Waters mentioned that when we were talking about AI last year. He did. And the Danish Competition Authority has put out a detailed paper about the tool they've been using, which we'll link to in the show notes. And Chair Gina Cascotlieb recently told the OECD that the ACCC is also using that Danish tool, as well as developing its own solution. Interesting. So we may see even more enforcement of Smurf Smurfing going forward. Yeah, and perhaps even at the expense of Smurf Smurfing, Smurfit Smurfing and Smurf Put Resmurfings, which could be harder to detect. Uh, I knew we'd get to a prediction eventually. <laughs> and finally, finally, the ACCC is about to release the sixth interim report in its digital platform services inquiry. Repo number six. That's right. Repo number six is looking at social media services and it's going to the treasurer at the end of March. But the ACCC has also just released an issues paper for repo number seven. And that's going to be about the expanding ecosystems of digital platform providers here in Australia. So I guess this would be about how Google used to be a search engine and Amazon used to be a bookshop. And now they all do everything from smart home assistance to streaming media. Yeah, that's what it's about. They're also looking at Apple, Meta and Microsoft. And it's interesting that all these companies started out doing fairly different things. And they haven't gone after each other's historical core businesses all that much, but they've all sort of moved into the same kind of adjacent markets. Well, you could argue that that's quite pro-competitive, couldn't you? If there are at least five substantial players trying to beat each other up all over the field. You could, though the ACCC is worried that they might be locking in their customers or bundling, tying or self-preferencing in ways that reduce competition as they keep expanding. Well, there we go. Repo number seven, Fatso the Fat-Assed Ecosystem. <laughs> the Fat-Assed and the Furious. Or oh, furious? No, 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 no. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes <laughs> or email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, Dr. Andrew Lee, and Sarah Lynch with the long-awaited Port Report. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. And your mascots. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.